Cool. And I, I bought a friend with some of these. All right. Oh, oh, what do you got? A little ladybug there, my man? Oh, a little bug there. That's cool. Hey, good evening, Mark. How are you, buddy? Good, good, good. Well, uh, we have a lot to cover tonight, so I am going to apologize in advance. Um, we are starting a new series tonight that uh, I don't know how long it's going to take me to get through everything. So we're probably, I already warned Randy about this, we're probably going to have very little time to pray tonight, okay? So if you have prayer requests, keep them on your mind. Uh, I normally don't do this. Normally I leave a big chunk of time to pray, but we just have a lot of area to cover tonight as we start it. It's not going to be like this every week. So if you have prayer requests, we'll share them quick at the end. I'll probably close us in prayer tonight if that's okay with everybody, all right? And so, uh, but we're starting a, a new series on the Old Testament, okay? Um, and uh, because, again, I think if there's one section of the Bible that is probably the most misunderstood, it's the Old Testament. Would you say that? Would you have to agree with me? I mean, you know the New Testament, you know, you know a lot of the stories. And, and even with the Old Testament, you might know individual stories, the Old Testament? Like, you know, you've heard the story of David and Goliath. You've heard, you know, the story of creation. You've heard the story of Noah and the flood. But how to put the, all of those together? What do they all mean? What did God intend for us through all of that? Well, that's going to be the point of this class. Okay, that's going to be the point of our study each and every week, is so that you know the Old Testament much better than you did when you first started with us. Okay? Um, that's the entire point of this whole thing. I want you to walk away knowing uh, your Bible. Hey, Cindy, come on in, sister. Good to see you. A long time no see. Come on in. Grab a seat anywhere. You got it. I'm just going on uh, tonight. But So I want you guys to be able to know the Old Testament far better than what you did when you, when, when you began this class by the end of this. And so the intention of our class is going to be to talk about the purpose of the Old Testament. It's, it's a survey, which means this, is that we're not going to get into a lot of the nitty-gritty of every single book of the Bible, we're going to give an overview. It's a survey of everything. So we're basically a huge flyover. It's going to take us a long time to fly over, but we're going to fly over it nonetheless, because you could spend the rest of your life studying the Old Testament and still not get to the bottom of it. So it's a survey. So that's the point. So I'm going to jump right in tonight. Uh, you guys can, uh, I, I gave you guys uh, paperwork here. I didn't print out enough stuff for everybody, but if you want one, I'll print one out for you guys later. All right. Um, but I have all these notes, even you guys who are online, um, uh, just let me know. I can get you all the notes that are here. And so the first question that we're going to answer tonight is what is the old Testament? What is the old Testament? Right? That's a great question for us to start with. Right. Um, and so the answer to that, and we're going to begin to answer that is the old Testament, sometimes referred to as the Tanakh. Okay. That's a Hebrew word, uh, which is a combination of a few other Hebrew words, which we're going to talk about here is the first part of the Christian biblical canon, uh, meaning uh, the collection of writings uh, that are considered sacred or inspired by God. That's what the term canon uh, uh, means. And we'll talk more about canonicity later and how the canon was determined and these kind of things later. But that's essentially what the Old Testament is. Uh, these writings were originally written in the, the Hebrew and Aramaic languages. Uh, the Bible that you have in your hand today, if you have an English translation, that's exactly what it is. That's not the original Bible. That was, that's a translation of the original from the original Hebrew and Aramaic into English, okay? Um, but they were originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And if you'd like to look at one of those Hebrew Bibles, I have them over in my office. You guys can look at that, copies of different things. I can show you all that. They were compiled and preserved uh, by Hebrew and Jewish scholars throughout the ages for thousands of years, literally. 
uh, and of course being the foundation and the basis for our New Testament. Of course, you need the Old Testament in order for you to have the New Testament. And that's, again, one of those things we'll talk about in a little bit, why the Old Testament is so important. Because you cannot have New Testament scripture. You cannot have New Testament doctrine. Uh, you cannot have the gospel of Jesus Christ without these books that begin the Bible. Okay? So, um, moving on, continuing to answer that question. By the way, if you have questions, just uh, raise your hand, and we'll, uh, I'll try my best to answer them. Uh, the writings that make up the biblical canon of the Old Testament uh, are made up of 39 books, 66 books uh, completely in the entire Bible, 27 in the New Testament, 39 in the Old Testament. And those 39 books are divided into three large sections, especially in the Hebrew Bible. Okay, The first one being the Torah. Okay, You can see that I put my fancy Hebrew up there, the Torah, or literally the law or the teachings. And this section is also referred to uh, sometimes as the Pentateuch, you've heard that term before, Pentateuch, and you hear that term Pente, which is, you know, a word that means five, uh, or the five books of Moses, which, again, Moses was the author of those first five books of the Pentateuch, of the Torah. And those five books of the Torah, Pentateuch, are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all written by Moses. Again, very quick flyover tonight, because we're going to get into all of these individually a little bit tonight and uh, later on in the future. So that makes up the first section of the Old Testament, the Torah. Uh, the second section is uh, the Nevi'im, or the prophets. That's literally what the, what the word means. The prophets contain three subgroups in and of themselves uh, and are not necessarily in chronological order. Next week, what we're going to do is we're going to do a chronological view of the history of the Old Testament. And we're going to put everything in its order and in its place next week. So you can look forward to that. But the Nevi'im uh, was not necessarily in chronological order, but substantive order, okay, um, substantive order. Uh, and that was divided into time periods of the particularities of the nation of Israel, which, again, we will go through. And those three sections of the Nevi'im are the former prophets, um, and I have the Hebrew word there. And those books are, uh, and again, Former prophets, we'll talk about that when we get into them, but they are Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, which again is all one book in the Hebrew Bible, and First and Second Kings, which again is all one book in the Hebrew Bible. In our English Bibles, it divides up into two just to make it for easier reading, but uh, in the Hebrew Bible, they are all one book. Uh, the second of the three sections of the second of the Nevi'im are the latter prophets, um, which those books are the bigger books of, uh, of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And the final are the 12 minor prophets. Uh, and those books are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, or Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Okay, And so uh, that makes up the prophets of the Old Testament. So if you open up a Hebrew Bible, it's going to look a little bit different than your English. And finally, the third portion is the writings, the Ketuvim. Um, and, and that section can be divided again into three portions. First and foremost, the poetic books. The Bible contains poetry, and those poetic books are Job, Psalms, and Proverbs, according to the Hebrew Bible. Some folks uh, add Song of Solomon to the, the, poet, the poetic books, but the Hebrew Bible does not. Uh, also, the five scrolls, and uh, these writings were to be read aloud in the synagogue at, at uh, various occasions. Actually, the entirety of the Torah and a lot of different things were, if you study out Judaism and these kind of things, are read aloud. But these ones specifically, you have Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and uh, Esther. 
And then you have the other writings, which are Daniel, uh, Ezra, and Nehemiah, and then First and Second Chronicles, which again, First and Second Chronicles would have been all one book as well in the Hebrew Bible, but are two separate books in our Bible today. Um, and so what is the Old Testament? That is a very brief flyover of, of, of what it is. And so we're going to talk about all the ins and outs of what I just went over. But I think that the meat of what I want to get to tonight as we go through this is a summary of all of the books of the Old Testament. Summary of all the books of the Old Testament. Go ahead, Rory. Why, why are the Songs of Solomon so sexual? We'll talk about that when we get to it, all right? Because that's one of the main, that's one of the main points. We'll actually talk about Song of Solomon very briefly tonight. But when we get to Song of Solomon, we'll, we'll, we'll jump into that, okay? So hold on to your seat. Yes, it is very sexual in nature, and, and uh, we'll talk about why that is, okay? So going through every book of, very briefly tonight, and I've only written a little paragraph for every book. So we're going to go through all 39 books tonight, really briefly, a huge flyover. We're going to look at them all individually over the next uh, couple of weeks. That's why I said to you, we might not get to too much praying. So this is like drinking from a fire hose tonight, right? I see you back there, Jason. I know, you know, but we're going to, we're going to, you're going to drink from a fire hose tonight and then it'll be like a water fountain over the next few weeks. So jumping in first and foremost, a brief summary of the books of the Old Testament. Uh, the first book in the Old Testament in your English Bible is Genesis. And as its name implies, Genesis, yeah, I should have capitalized it on my thing here, but Genesis is all about beginnings. That's what the word Genesis means. And Genesis tells us uh, that God created everything that exists. That's how the book begins. It shows that God is both the creator and ruler of all creation, but it also tells of humanity's tragic fall into sin and death. That's one of the major things. And at the beginning of God's plan and the beginning of God's plan of redemption, through the covenant with Abraham and his descendants, both physical, speaking of the Israelites or the Jews, the physical descendants of Abraham, as well as the spiritual descendants of Abraham, or God's elect people throughout time, referring to you and me. God's promise goes back not just to Jews, as we've been talking about through Acts, but it goes to all peoples of faith, just like Abraham. And it's going to be very, very key when we go through the book of Genesis, which we will in a couple of weeks, uh, to understand that book and to understand it very well, because it lays the foundation for the entire Bible, I would argue. Okay, um, for salvation, as well as our understanding of nature, our understanding of mankind. Genesis is just so vital to our understanding uh, of, of God and of, of Christianity. So very, very important book to not misunderstand and to understand correctly. All right. Uh, but that's a basic overview of it. Moving on, Genesis, or, uh, Genesis Exodus. Exodus tells us of God's fulfilling his promise to Abraham uh, by making his descendants into a great nation. That was a promise that he made to uh, the Israelites, delivering them from slavery of Egypt. We'll talk about that. Uh, leading them to the promised land and making the covenant uh, to them or a promise to them at, at Mount Sinai, where he gave him his law. Moses, under the direct command of God and as leader of Israel, received the Ten Commandments from God, along with all of the other laws that govern national Israel's life and worship. And as we're going to see, laid the foundation for how God uh, leads his elect people, his 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 uh, his spiritual people throughout time. Exodus, again, is a very important book. Um, but it's about a lot more than just, you know, uh, let my people go. It's about a lot more than that. And we're going to talk about that. Leviticus. This book outlines the complete law of God as given to Moses at Mount Sinai. And the central message to the book of Leviticus is that God is holy. That's one thing that you, if you read through Leviticus, you will realize the holiness of God. 
and his requirements. And when we talk about holy, how it's separate he is, um, how righteous he is, and what he requires of us, and really how unrighteous we are and how unholy we are, right? And by the way, that he requires his people to be holy. And so you have to ask yourself the question is, is I can't be holy. So what hope do I have? Well, we'll talk about that. If you're a Christian, you already know the answer to that. Uh, the holiness is found in Jesus Christ. But the book also shows that God graciously provides atonement for sin through the shedding of blood, foreshadowing that Christ, what Christ would do in an ultimate fashion. And we'll talk about that when we get to Leviticus, because uh, much of Leviticus talks about the, the sacrificial laws and all the sacrifices that they had to make on behalf of their own sins. And so what that was, and we'll talk about this, is a foreshadowing, again, of what Christ would do in an ultimate way, uh, where Jesus was the final sacrifice for our sins, paying for our sins upon the cross of Calvary, and that's part of the reason why we don't have to go through uh, that process of the law. He fulfilled that part of, of God's word for us. And so uh, that we'll get to that when we get to Leviticus. Numbers. Uh, the title Numbers comes from the two censuses that were taken that are in the book. They're central to the book's theme. Uh, the Hebrew Bible actually titles the book In the Wilderness. That's literally what the name of the book means, which is, I think, a more fitting uh, title, considering that uh, this takes place after the events of Mount Sinai, after God had given them the law, and where God had brought them to the border of the Promised Land, which, as I put here, which the Israelites refused to take possession of by uh, possession of. And so God, because of their unbelief, because of the, their lack of faith in God, God made them wander in the wilderness for another 40 years so that generation would die out so that the next generation would be the one that would go into the promised land. We'll talk about the importance of that. But, uh, but again, in the wilderness is a more, uh, more fitting title, I think, than, than, the, than the name Numbers. But. Uh, numbers, Deuteronomy. That literally translates as second law. That's what the word Deuteronomy means, second law. And Deuteronomy is a retelling of the teachings and the events of the previous three books, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, uh, in the Pentateuch by Moses. Uh, the point being that the Israelites would remember God's promises and his laws as they enter into the promised land uh, after Moses' death. Because Moses, of course, we'll talk about this, was not allowed to go into the promised land. Joshua was uh, the one that was to lead them into the promised land. And the book actually closes, Deuteronomy closes with the death of Moses actually being written most likely by Joshua, finished by Joshua, book begun by Moses, finished by Joshua. And so, um, so it kind of leads off into that, which is fitting because of the next book, which is Joshua, right? Joshua. And this is the story of the conquest and the partition of the promised land by the Israelites, uh, new leader, Joshua and the people. They finally did go into the promised land and take the promised land. That's the main point, God's fulfillment of his promises to his people, uh, the temporal promises of the, the uh, promise of the actual land of Israel. We'll talk about that more. Joshua, but moving into Joshua, after the conquest of the land comes what happened afterwards, after they were actually established in the land. And that brings us to the book of Judges. And the book is named after a collection of leaders of Israel that arose after Joshua's death. Again, as the title of the book is known as the Judges. Uh, before uh, the line of kings of Israel began, which is another section of the, of the Bible we'll get into. And the book records uh, the nation of Israel's spiritual and physical decline. Okay, and Despite all of God's promises, despite all the things that, uh, that he told them would happen if they obeyed him, and when they went into the promised land, Israel would continually turn from God 
that we continually serve other gods, that we continually whore after other things and do the exact opposite of what God had to say to them. And so to which, as I put here, God would punish the nation through slavery and captivity of the surrounding nations who would come in and, and take them and, and take them captive only for them in their plight to repent of those sins so that God would send deliverers. That's going to be a key word that we're going to talk about, uh, deliverers uh, or judges to help them, okay? Uh, it's kind of foreshadowing to the Messiah. We'll talk about that more. But uh, the main theme of the book is summed up with the verse, verses, I should put, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so you see this thing where rather than doing what was right in the eyes of God, they do what was right in their own eyes. And so there's chaos in the land at that time. There's, there's conquests and then repentance and then back and forth and all these kind of things. It's a crazy time for the, for the life of Israel at that particular time. Just as they entered the promised land, it was an amazing thing. And that's what the book of Judges is about. And, uh, the next book, actually, Ruth, goes along with the book of Judges. Ruth is a short story that takes place uh, during the time period of the Judges, uh, outlining the life of a Moabite woman. And again, the Moabite woman was, uh, you know, again, we'll talk about the line of the Moabites and God's curse on the Moabites through the, the Old Testament when we talk about Ruth again, is an amazing thing that she was a foreigner and how God used her, but outlining the life of a Moabite woman who would go on to become the grandmother of King David and ultimately in the line of Jesus Christ himself, how God would use this Moabite woman uh, to bring about the savior of the world. It's an amazing, amazing story. We'll talk about Ruth when we get to that. Uh, by the way, questions, raise your hands. Okay. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Roy. Yeah, um, why did Moses or maybe why did God choose Joshua when he was too just too immature? He wasn't ready to take on a point of leadership with Israel and then take part in building Gaul. Well, you know, again, uh, well, there was, there was a few things to that. But again, God, just to answer the overarching question there, there's yeah. a few different things there, but we'll talk about it when we get there. God chooses who he wants, ultimately. Uh, Moses, if we really want to get into all the nitty gritty of all the different characters in the Bible, nobody was qualified. Moses wasn't qualified when God called him. No, uh, right. I mean, there was so much uh, about the prophets. There was so much. I mean, look at Peter. I mean, you get in the New Testament, some of these other ones. Nobody's qualified. God uses broken people to bring about his will. Similarly, uh, Jonah, right? right. Going to uh, Nineveh. Right. Where he could have been easily slaughtered. Right. Even opening his mouth. Right. Yeah, and he was probably one of the most unqualified. He didn't even want to do it, no. and yet God used it, right? Yeah. And so, uh, but we'll talk about we'll talk about that. But does that answer your question, brother? Yeah. All right. Sure. We'll, we'll get we'll get to it when we when we get there. But because uh, I don't want to I don't want to spoil too much uh, as we go through. But Ruth, moving on to to uh, some of the historical books, First Samuel, and again in the Hebrew Bible, uh, both First and Second Samuel are together in the in the in the Hebrew Bible, but. First Samuel is a story of the nation of Israel during the judgment, uh, or the judgeship, excuse me, of Samuel, the last judge, and the reign of King Saul, as well as the rise of King David. And uh, that's the whole narrative of the entire book of First Samuel. Second Samuel is the complete story of the reign of King David. Um, and so it, it shows us everything that David did while he was actually king of Israel. First Kings. Uh, this book begins with the death of King David and the rise of his son, King Solomon. Uh, Solomon's unfaithfulness, it's, it's also recorded for us, his unfaithfulness to God in the later stages of his life set the stage for major problems in the life of Israel, apostasy. 
apostasy being just people leaving the faith. You believe at one time and then you don't later on. It set the stage for apostasy and the downfall of the entire nation of Israel. The actions of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, would ultimately lead to a divided kingdom of Israel uh, into a northern and southern kingdom, northern kingdom being Israel, and the southern kingdom being referred to as Judah. So northern and southern kingdoms of Israel, divided nation. And the book also outlines the building of the temple, which David was not allowed to do, uh, but his son Solomon was allowed to do it, and, uh, and also the rise of the prophet Elijah, whom we will also talk about in detail. Second Kings, uh, this book outlines the continued downfall of the nation of Israel due to the nation's disobedience, uh, concluding with the prophetic ministry of Elijah. He's introduced in first, first Kings, and he continues his ministry in Second Kings, and the rise of his successor, the prophet Elisha. Don't get Elijah and Elisha mixed up. They are two different people. Easy uh, to do. What, what's that, brother? Easy to do. Right. Actually, Elisha actually has one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible, it's when uh, Elisha was bald. Uh, he was a bald prophet, and the Bible tells us this. And one day he was, there was this major disrespect for the man of God in the nation of Israel, right? They just disrespected all of God's prophets. And so one day there was a bunch of children out who were uh, making fun of his bald head uh, because they were actually making fun of him because at that time Elijah had uh, just been taken up into heaven by God. Uh, and, uh, and he did that in a miraculous way. And so these children show up, and they, they tell him in the old King James, it reads, go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head, like go up into heaven with him. And you know what happens? God, God calls two she-bears out of the woods, and they eat the children as a result of their, dis, their dishonor of God's prophet. You remember that? That's a frightening story, but it's, it's an important one. I preached on that one years ago. It's not one of the kids' Right, no, it's not a cute little kid's story, not at all. And, uh, you know, but, uh, right. Amazing stuff. But, uh, but moving on, uh, so Elijah and Elisha and the book records the downward spiral of both of those kingdoms, both the Northern and Southern kingdom, kingdom, Israel, the Northern kingdom being taken captive by the Assyrians and Judah, the Southern kingdom eventually being taken captive by the Babylonians. And that's going to become very, very important, uh, part of, uh, as we get into the prophets. Uh, First Chronicles was uh, originally, again, one book with Second Chronicles. Uh, both these books, the one book was written after Judah began to return home from the Babylonian exile. Okay. After, excuse me, uh, after they were, uh, they had been under the Assyrian and Babylonian rule for many years. Eventually they were allowed to go back into the land. Um, and so the Chronicles were a re-recording of the history of Israel and all of these things. That's the reason why they're kind of in secession, but they were written much later then 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Samuel. Uh, and they record, of course, the history of Judah, specifically Judah, the southern kingdom. It focuses more on, on the, the southern kingdom. 2nd Chronicles extends the history of Judah from the first book. Uh, this book focuses on a recap of Judah's fall into sin and tries to encourage uh, the people to restore the kingdom of Israel to the greatness it had during Solomon's reign. Um, the book records the actions of several good kings, uh, and yet how the nation still declined uh, after uh, this, uh, even, even after God gave them good kings. And so moving on, Ezra, picking up where First and Second Chronicles ends, uh, Ezra records the story of the return of the Jews from the Babylonian, not Babylonian-ish, 
I, uh, that's a misprint, but the Babylonian uh, captivity and of the uh, rebuilding of the temple itself. Uh, that was one of the first things that God called upon them to do because the temple, of course, when the Babylonians, the Assyrians came in, they would have destroyed the temple and uh, they would have taken that. And so God wanted it rebuilt. And so uh, Ezra was the leader of the second wave. There were several waves that came back from Babylonian captivity. The second wave of Israelites returning uh, to the land, excuse me, from their exile. Uh, and Ezra preached God's word and uh, the people repented as a result of uh, Ezra's ministry. Uh, very important, which moves on to Nehemiah, which is a further account of the rebuilding of the temple. That's what Nehemiah focuses on and the city of Jerusalem. And uh, and of the obstacles that were encountered and overcome, um, and had to be overcome, I should have put. Uh, Nehemiah specifically was sent by the king of Persia to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, which was met with uh, intense opposition by the people. They didn't want to do it. They were tired and just returning from exile, and so, and so there was a lot of opposition to uh, Nehemiah. But despite all this, uh, the walls were rebuilt. And when the people would fall into sin, Nehemiah would call upon Ezra to read the law to them, which would remind them of their obligations and their duties. And so uh, we'll get to Nehemiah later on. Esther, um, the story of, uh, this is a story of a Hebrew woman uh, who becomes queen of Persia, again, during that uh, exiled position. And by God's grace, saves, uh, by God's grace, saves the Israelites from destruction. Interestingly, one thing to know, and we'll talk about this when we get to Esther, uh, this is the only book of the Bible where God is not explicitly mentioned. God is not mentioned at all in the book of Esther. And yet, what's interesting about it is that you see his plan and his sovereignty uh, that are clearly seen and felt throughout the pages of Esther. Very important book. And so, uh, not that they're all important, but uh, very important uh, to the life of uh, the Old Testament. Job is a very long book about the story of God's sovereignty over the trials of his servant Job. Uh, the book of Job is most likely the oldest uh, book of the Old Testament, written uh, well before even Moses uh, penned uh, Genesis and the Pentateuch. Um, it's a very important book if you want to understand God's sovereignty over evil and uh, trials in our lives. Go ahead, Rory. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's kind of debated. Yeah, exactly what was going on in, in regard and who the, the Nephilim were. We, we can't, we can't right. uh, figure out what, where Job spits. It's just we know that it had to be right. far beyond before the prophets. Or anything else. Right, right. It was, it was an inter, it's an interesting, it has an interesting history as far as where it fits, but uh, it is canon and it's a very important book in, in, in relationship to God's sovereignty and uh, especially over evil and his relationship to Satan himself. Um, it's a very important book, I would argue. Uh, but Job's Psalms, again, a collection of sacred poems intended for the use in the worship of God especially in, uh, in the temple worship and these kind of things, but also they're very important. I would go further than that. I just have a little sentence there, but uh, very important. Some messianic prophecies made throughout the book of Psalms. Uh, again, uh, it just, uh, I keep saying a very important book, but it is a very important book in the scriptures, but um, we'll talk about that. Proverbs, a collection of practical wisdom, uh, practical wisdom for living rooted in the fear of the Lord, 
and that's a quotation from several places. But of course, uh, the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Well, and um, what's that, brother? Well, Proverbs are great and uh, very practical, very, very important. And um, and so, uh, yeah, go right ahead there, sister. Um, and so, yeah, so moving on to some more of the po poetic books, we have Ecclesiastes, uh, written uh, by Solomon, Reflections of an old Solomon, an old man, Solomon, as he uh, questions the meaning of life. Gets to that point in his life where he's just like, what's the point of all this? He was a very rich man. He lived a what the world would call a very, very full life. He had everything that he could have ever dreamed of in his entire life. Uh, money, women, anything that he wanted, he could have had. And uh, But yet he gets to that point in his life where he reflects upon the futility of all those things, the futility of wealth, the futility of of pleasure and power uh, because namely of their ultimate end being death. That's really the, the, the heart of, of his reflections is that, you know, yeah, I did all these things, but I'm still going to die. Um, the great equalizer of all men. And it's a very important book again, because uh, it's, it reflects on some very important things that we all have to deal with. We all have to deal with death and we all have to deal with the purpose and the meaning of life. And, um, and how it relates to the entirety of the scriptures. And so we'll get there. We'll get there and we'll discuss that. Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. Uh, Rory asked about this, a collection of love poems, I would argue, between uh, a man and a woman uh, celebrating their sexual relationship that God intended for marriage. Uh, God established marriage. He, he established that in the garden. That's the reason why Genesis, again, is, is probably the most in how you understand Genesis is going to be one of the most key and foundational books of how you understand life and how you understand Christianity and really how you interpret sexuality in books like this. Um, God established marriage, including the sexual union between a husband and wife, right at the beginning of time, right in the garden, uh, representing the, the wisdom of God and the true expression of human sexuality. And uh, I say that it's a collection of love poems between a man and a woman, and I call it Song of Songs because as when we get there, I don't think it was written by Solomon. I don't think it was written really? by someone. No. I don't. Uh, that's the, and there's actually a lot of debate. That's the reason why sometimes it's called Song of Songs, and sometimes it's called Song of Solomon, depending upon how you translate that. I prefer Song of Songs because I don't think it was written. Matter of fact, I think it was written in critique of Solomon, who had a million wives, who had you know hundreds of wives. This guy only wanted one. You read that book, he only, he only had one girl on his mind. And, uh, and Solomon obviously did not. That's the reason why I don't think that it was Solomon who wrote it. We'll get to that, though. Go ahead, Rory. Yeah. Right. He was David was a very lustful, sinful man. Right. He, he murdered someone out of lust for a woman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The guy right in front of the army and said, "Go ahead and set him to his death." Right. Just and so he could be with the dude's wife. And, and yeah, well, and and unfortunately, that same kind of thing carried on down to his son. And we'll yeah. talk again. We'll talk about that. And one of the one of the how God used that is kind of one of the downfalls of the nation of Israel as we get there, but very much related. So Song of Songs, very important book. Isaiah, getting into some of the major prophets, as we call them, written during the decline and captivity of Israel. Isaiah gives hope through prophecies of the coming Christ and his eternal kingdom. Uh, Isaiah is one of those books that we constantly go back to, especially around Christmas time. Gives a lot of prophecies concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel is actually, you know, the name Emmanuel, God with us. That comes from Isaiah. And um, and so Isaiah is just one of those great books 
that gives uh, the hope of mankind through, uh, through its pages. Jeremiah, similarly, it's taking place just before the fall of the kingdom of Judah. Uh, Jeremiah, sometimes referred to as the weeping prophet, prophesies uh, announcing the captivity of Judah, its sufferings, and the final overthrow of its enemies. That's one of the main points of it. And Jeremiah is usually called the weeping prophet because of the next book that he wrote, Lamentations. Uh, Jeremiah would have written Lamentations, and Lamentations is the idea of lamenting or uh, at being extremely sorrowful. And this is made up of five individual poems throughout the book. Uh, the book outlines the utterances of Jeremiah's sorrow uh, upon the capture of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple at that time. So again, this is why when we go back in the chronology next week, you see how we're kind of going back and forth between a lot of things before and after the captivity and during. And um, I'm just going through them in our English Bible order tonight. That's what I'm doing. But next week, we're going to go through them in an actual chronological order and put them in their place in history. So you guys will understand that. But Jeremiah would have been lamenting all the things that happened as Jerusalem was taken and as the country was, was destroyed. Ezekiel. This was written during the exile, during the captivity. Uh, Ezekiel, a prophet and priest, uh, brings messages of warning and comfort, uh, messianic comfort uh, to the Jews in their captivity. Again, uh, focusing on Christ there. A lot of things going on there. Again, I, I had a really hard time putting these into one sentence, some of them. Uh, because they're so long and just, uh, but Ezekiel, again, another very important book. Daniel uh, was written during the captivity. Uh, it records Daniel, uh, who uh, we, we understand the, the main story about him is, is Daniel the lion's den, right? He, uh, the nation had been taken and uh, he was under uh, that Babylonian rule and he was told not to pray to God and he went ahead and did it anyways, uh, despite the government's decree. And what happened to him? He was thrown in the lion's den as a result. That's a very simplified, uh, you know, uh, story. But of course, God protected him and took him out of the lion's den, showing God's protection of his people. Did the same thing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace when uh, those three men wouldn't obey the, the king. And the king had him thrown in the fiery furnace. And the fourth man in the fire, who was as the son of God, protected him. And they came out of the fiery furnace, which is an amazing thing. But uh, the book outlines uh, both uh, some of the occurrences that took place under the Babylonian reign, like we just talked about, as well as some prophecies concerning uh, the coming of Christ. It gets kind of confusing, actually, the book of Daniel, especially as it relates to the book of Revelation in the New Testament. But we'll talk about that when we get there. Jose, yeah, go ahead there, brother. So, yeah. um, Nebuchadnezzar, right? Right. He told him he, he had a dream, right? He wanted his these dark magicians and sorcerers and stuff to tell them to dream then. But Daniel then he points to Daniel and Daniel says, I've seen a vision, this is what I see. Here's how I interpret your dream right. by my my will, whatever but my God. Mm -hmm. um, how long did Daniel live above, along with Nebuchadnezzar in, in Babylon? A long time. He would have been there um he would have been there a long time. Actually God even uses Nebuchadnezzar as a tool. Right, he does. And God changes his heart and um, and so it's it's uh, it would have been a long time. So uh, probably most of his life, to be honest with you, uh, because Daniel probably would have been a young man when when the when the nation was taken. But Hosea, uh, another prophet, minor prophet, was written just before the fall of the northern kingdom. Hosea brings prophecies relating to Christ in the latter days. Uh, God instructs Hosea to marry, according to chapter one, verse two, a wife of boredom. He requires Hosea to marry a whore. Uh, whose unfaithfulness to her husband uh, would serve as an example of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. 
uh, a, uh, a, uh, an analogy. His entire life was an analogy that we look back to. And the book is, as I put here, a living analogy for the depths of God's love for his people, despite our continual unfaithfulness to God. Because we are not faith. If we're honest with ourselves, are we faithful to God all the time? No, we whore after other things. And we're just as bad. And yet he does. What does he do? Does he ever cast us aside? Does God ever divorce us? No, he doesn't. God, you know, Jesus Christ loves us and, um, and remains faithful to us despite, despite those things. And it's an amazing thing. Um, but Hosea, Joel, uh, Joel speaks of a locust plague that had struck Israel in which he said foreshadowed, quote, the day of the Lord. And this was a time that was greatly anticipated by the Israelites because they believed that God would judge the nations and restore Israel to her former glory, which again is true. Um, but speak, and we're going to talk about who Israel is and these kind of things and how God is going to fill that prophecy. But Joel would prophesy that God would eventually pour out his spirit on all flesh, according to Joel 2.28, something that would be fulfilled later on as we've already gone through uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 17 when God's spirit was poured out upon his people at Pentecost. And so we see the fulfillment of that prophecy in the New Testament. Again, something we'll talk about when we get there. Amos uh, was a shepherd and a farmer who lived during the peaceful times of the Northern Kingdom uh, before the exile, before they were taken over. And he would prophesy that Israel and other neighboring nations would be punished by uh, conquerors uh, from the North, as well as uh, the fulfillment of the Messiah's kingdom uh, to a faithful remnant. And so again, very messianic, small book, one that we don't normally think of, Amos, a very important book in the, in the Bible. He made cookies too, didn't he? Amos, yeah, famous Amos. <laughs> oh, wow. That's true, amen. Yeah, there you go. Those are good. I like famous Amos. Those are good. Yes, yes, very much so. Wow. Moving on, Obadiah. <laughs> I want to get through these. Uh, the shortest book of the Old Testament, uh, written shortly after the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, during the siege, people from Edom, we'll talk about the importance of people from Edom, they would actually help to capture the fleeing Israelites for the Babylonians, turning them over to the Babylonians, which angered God immensely. And so Obadiah was thus uh, would thus prophesy uh, um, the, of the desolation of Edom, uh, as well as the restoration of the house of Jacob. Um, and we'll, again, talk about that later on. Um, Jonah spoke a little bit about that as a story of a prophet called by God to preach a message of destruction upon the evil city of Nineveh. And the book is odd. The book of Jonah is a very, very odd book uh, in that it doesn't really focus on Israel or really the bigger story that is going on in terms of the kingdom and all of these other things, but instead it's kind of focuses on God's relationship with the prophet Jonah himself, which makes it kind of a one and done. It does fit into the whole plan of God, but it's an interesting book because it focuses, most of the other minor prophets focus on the big picture, whereas Jonah focuses on Jonah. That's the whole point. And so really good book. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. Micah, uh, written uh, by Micah, obviously during the final days of the Southern kingdom, time where the wealthy were oppressing the poor. And so he warns of an impending judgment on the nation because of those sinful actions. God's word over and over again says not to take advantage or, or, uh, or uh, you know, oppress the poor people. Uh, and so God uh, is, is going to deliver judgment on them. And so Michael also gives prophecies of hope 
We're in through the ultimate deliverer, which is who? It's Jesus Christ, right? Uh, there would be peace between all nations uh, who would be able to, uh, these nations would eventually beat their swords into plowshares where there would be no war anymore. Uh, there would be no fighting throughout the world. There will be world peace truly under this, this deliverer, this prince of peace. That's who he's referring to, the Lord Jesus Christ. This world will never know true peace until King Jesus Christ comes back. When he comes back, there'll be no need for guns. There'll be no need for swords. There'll be no need for war because he will make peace as the Prince of Peace. Michael also prophesied that this deliverer would be born in Bethlehem. So as we know, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So Nahum is actually a continuation of the story of Jonah. Uh, it's part two of the story of Nineveh. Um, God sends uh, Nahum to prophesy of the final downfall of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire, which God eventually does do. He destroys Nineveh completely uh, after Nahum. We'll talk about the meaning of his name, actually, which is interesting when you tie both, um, when you tie both Jonah and Nahum together. Habakkuk, uh, written just before the fall of Assyria and the rise of Babylon, uh, Habakkuk outlines how God, in his sovereignty, used the Assyrians to punish Israel and how he would now use Babylon to punish Assyria and Judah and the southern kingdom. And the theme of the book is summed up with the question, just this question, how can God use a wicked nation for his divine purposes? Can God use a wicked nation for his divine purposes? And yes, he can. The answer being that God uses all nations. He uses everything and everyone for his purposes. And, uh, and that he would eventually, just like he did with the Assyrians, um, he would judge Babylon, which would occur by the Persians in 539 B.C. And so God uses all things for his glory's sake and for his ultimate purpose. God is sovereign over all things in history, uh, including, by the way, things going on today in America. So don't, don't let things going on in life uh, and in our nation scare you. God is still completely in control of all things. Um, moving on, Zephaniah, another not well-known book uh, written during the reforms of the good southern king Josiah. We'll talk about him. After the disastrous reign of King Manasseh, who came before him, Zephaniah prophesies God's judgment upon the people, as well as the restoration of Judah on the day of the Lord, and how a remnant of faithful believers uh, would be saved, encouraging all who read uh, to seek and to fear the Lord. Um, Haggai, or Haggai, depending upon how you translate it, uh, Haggai is actually probably the proper way to pronounce that, but I always grew up saying Haggai. Uh, so however you want to pronounce it, that's fine. Uh, this was written during the first wave of the Jewish exiles. There were three waves. Uh, first wave of the Jewish exiles returned to Jerusalem, Haggai or Haggai, in conjunction with Zechariah, the next book, the next prophet encouraged the final rebuilding of the temple. And the people were understandably, as I said, discouraged from their time in exile, focusing more on their own homes and their own lives rather than on the things of God. They just wanted things to get back to normal. So the church, well, not the church, but the temple uh, went by the wayside. It was half built. And, uh, and so he warns, Haggai warns, that despite their best efforts, they would never return to their previous wealth due to their neglect of God's temple. If you neglect God's way, you're, you're not, you can't expect you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. He calls the, the people to repent and grow as the people of God. Moving on, Zechariah, closely related to Haggai. Uh, while Haggai encouraged the rebuilding of the temple, Zechariah encouraged the people to repent and renew their covenant with God. That was his main focus. It wasn't enough for the temple to simply be rebuilt if their hearts were not completely given to God. They need, it needed to start here. 
It wasn't enough just to rebuild the temple. They needed to start in their heart of hearts. Why don't I want to build the temple? Why don't I want to serve God? That's what Zechariah deals with. The book ends with the promise that the Lord would one day send one to establish his rule over the earth someday. Again, another messianic prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ. And finally, Malachi, the last of the 39 books, written after the time of Haggai and Zechariah. The people had grown cold in their worship of God once again, as the messianic age that they spoke of had not occurred yet. Uh, they were waiting for this Messiah that they've been talking about, this, this age of prosperity and peace. Hadn't occurred yet, and so they got discouraged. And so Malachi calls the people to repentance and worship, uh, focusing on the priesthood, which had become corrupt at that time, the worship, which had become routine, which we are all in danger of, divorce, which had been widespread, which Malachi talks about, justice for the poor, which were being neglected at the time, and tithing, which was also being neglected. Uh, the book also includes prophecies of the coming of both John the Baptist and of Jesus Christ. So there you have it. Those, that is an overview, a very brief summary of every single book in the Old Testament. Drinking from a fire hose tonight, right? Yeah. Right. We're going to go through every one of these individually. We're going to take a whole week, maybe two weeks per, all right? And uh, we're going to really delve into what the, all these books are all about and how they all fit into the chronology of the Bible. Uh, but the final point I wanted to make tonight before we go to prayer is the overarching point of the Old Testament, a very quick point. The overarching point of the Old Testament is to show man's fall from the grace of God due to sin. That's why Genesis is so very important. His and his complete inability to keep the laws of God. One thing that the Old Testament shows over and over again is man's failure, even in his most religious of activities. We cannot keep the law of God on our own. We will never be good enough on our own to earn God's favor. And so what do we need? We need a savior. He did it for us. So the entirety of the Old Testament points to one person and one person alone, and his name is Jesus Christ. If you get nothing else from this class, if you get nothing else from this study, the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So that's that. Um, any brief questions before we jump to prayer tonight? Questions, comments, concerns? Go ahead, Marcus, yeah. So, um, real quick, I just wanted to get your opinion. Because um, you kind of sparked my interest when you mentioned Genesis and Exodus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I saw three seminars from Jordan Peterson. Oh, yeah. yeah. He talked about Genesis and Exodus. Now, he doesn't talk about it from a religious standpoint. Right. It's more of a psychological breakdown right. of human behavior, so to speak. I wanted to know your opinion on that, if you do anything about it. Wait, I think, I think Justin Peterson is, uh, for those of you guys who don't know who Justin Peterson is, Jordan Justin Peterson, Peterson, or Jordan, Jordan Peterson, I keep saying Justin. Jordan Peterson is a, uh, like Marcus said, he's a philosopher. Uh, he is a, well, he was a uh, psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, a psychologist, yeah, psychologist originally. and uh, originally, and uh, he gained notoriety in the political field for, uh, in the conservative movement for, uh, basically speaking out against some of the insanity that we're seeing in our culture today. Just, uh, well, he, the, he got fired from the um, yeah. university and candidate that he worked for. Right. Because, because of what he did. Well, again, he believed in absolute truth. He, he didn't buy into the postmodern viewpoint that there is no truth, that morality is relative, these kind of things, which is not a popular idea today. And so naturally he got kicked out. And so he, he gained notoriety usually through YouTube and usually more online means, um, not necessarily because he was a conservative, but because he was making a lot of common sense arguments. And so 
He's not, uh, he's certainly not religious. I wouldn't consider him a Christian uh, at all. No, um, I, he's Christian. I would definitely consider him probably a, a believer in God, more of an agnostic than anything. But, uh, but he has some very interesting viewpoints on, um, on especially Old Testament scripture uh, from a more secular viewpoint, which, which again, I would argue at its base is looking at it from a more moralistic perspective. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, like we talked about, the need for a savior. Well, like I said, he right. doesn't do it on a religious, you know, right. level. He does it on the more of a human behavior, human right. action kind of thing. Right. Which I, I found it interesting. Right. To see both sides of it, you know, you see right. what Moses is talking about, and then you see a secular version of it. Right. So you get both sides of the right. spectrum. And it's it's it, he he has a lot of really good insight. I was telling you on Sunday a little bit about that. Yeah. You know what I mean, and uh, I I I have no problem with people listening to Jordan Peterson at all. Um, but I, I think that you also have to be very careful to keep in mind that he is coming at it from a from a very uh, he's coming at it from a humanist secular perspective. So he's not going to degrade the Bible in any form or fashion, but he's going to misinterpret it. Uh, and, and and the main thing that he's going to misinterpret is that last point that I. Right, because he's going to look at the the Old Testament as a means to an end. If you just follow all these things, you're going to be good in and of yourself. I don't I don't believe that. I think that I think that these things are meant to point to our our frailties as human beings, and the only way that of redemption is the salvation through Jesus Christ. He makes some good points, but yeah, I just um, thought it was interesting. You know? No, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. But um, any other comments or thoughts? Anybody online? Like uh, drinking from a fire hose tonight, but well, thank you guys for uh, uh, for bearing with me. Next week we're going to go through the chronology of the Old Testament um, and uh, kind of putting everything in its place, like I said. And then uh, the following week we're going to um, after that, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, basically go through every single book of the Bible and kind of talk about it uh, from there.